Welcome to the Sound Conference, and this session is called Unpacking the Incomprehensible Contracts for Freelancers. Uh, my name is Michaela, and this is my second session I'm moderating today. Now, before we start again, our screen, you can pin any of us as, I mean, I don't think anyone is interested in me, but <laughs> full screen or on top of the screen. And then you have the chat section and Q&A. So leave your comments, leave your questions. We're going to go through them and yeah, try to answer everything uh, everyone's got in mind. Um, right, so it is my pleasure to introduce our speakers today. Please, everyone, welcome after a bit of a struggle, uh, Mr. Stephen Edelman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here we go. Steve is the head of the Edelman Law Group. The oh, McKenna, let me just introduce myself. It'll be there you faster go. and less painful. Please, yeah, I mean, you, you yeah. get like a great bio. <laughs> yes, people have been waiting. Let's let's go. Let's get on with it. It's Sunday, go for God's sake. I mean, Amazing. Go on. <laughs> All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve Edelman. I am not you. Um, so, if, you know, somebody with command of technology in this hop in system can put my name in there. That would be fabulous. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> in the chat, you can just write, hey, you. Um, and who's the dog? This is Ellie. Ellie, say hi. It's Sunday. So we hey, get to hi. be friendly. Um yeah, I'm head of Edelman Law Group, so I'm an attorney. Um, I deal with safety and security and live event stuff, um, which is to say I write and deal with contracts a lot of the time. Um, I also deal with people who get owies of varying degrees at live events and how to prevent them. So that's me. I'm vice president of the Event Safety Alliance, and as of Wednesday, I am deputy chair of the brand new um, Global Crowd Management Alliance. So if crowd mm -hmm. management seems like a topical issue, um, let's just be clear. GCMA has been in the works for several years. The timing relative to kerfuffles in Texas or Wisconsin or reports in the UK is purely coincidental. It takes a lot of time to stand up a new association. So please don't say, oh, Steve, did your organization just start two weeks ago? <laughs> no, no, no. It's been in the works for quite a while. Um, here, let me let, let me just get the ball rolling. Michaela, you can like go get tea or something. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and I, mean, Chris, I, I will I mean, actually let you pose a question at some point. But uh, God, I'm I really hate you. technological problems. So. Here are two contract thoughts for you, you know, gentle viewers. Um, one, when you are arranging a contract that has a specified day or time, make sure that you specify the time zone. And if you are dealing with people halfway around the world, as I am fortunate enough to, I have friends in Australia and New Zealand, make sure you say what day it is there, if that's where the event is, because their day may be different also. Uh, we had that problem here today. So if it seems like I'm a little agitated, that's part of the reason, because I'm talking to you from Scottsdale, Arizona, which is really beautiful today. But Arizona is a funky place. Because it's the hot side of the sun during the summer, we don't do daylight savings time. 
So Arizona does not change its clocks unless you're on the Navajo or Apache Indian reservations way the hell up north. So if you ever went to Four Corners and, you know, stood like a dog with your hands in two states and your legs in the other two, you had to change your clocks back then. But the rest of us, you know, in civilization, we don't. So make sure that you specify the time that the event will take place and the day if that's a relevant consideration. Uh, the other thing that I'll just say to get it out of my system is if you are utilizing technology for your meeting, conference, whatever, make sure that it is accessible to everyone to test their system in advance. So shout out to you know mundane systems like Zoom, I guess, or StreamYard, because Hopin didn't let us test this, which is why we were late getting started. And I really hate looking unprofessional. So on behalf of myself and the band, I really apologize for making you wait, um, which is why, Michaela, I was eager to just get started because... Because it's Sunday, there's football to watch, and I just watched two Premier League soccer matches, and I'm pretty happy my team won nicely. (laughs) You know, it's a good day in Edelman world, but I like when things run smoothly. So, hi. Apologies again, really, for the (laughs) trouble. I mean, I I probably should go now. (laughs) (laughs) You scared her off, Steve. Yeah. No, I mean, you have no idea. I mean, seriously, when I signed up for this, I didn't know that I'm going to be dealing face in face with big names. Chris? (laughs) Chris, you're a big name here. Apparently, I'm a big name. Yeah, I don't. don't... (laughs) I'm going to just go off the screen now. I'm going to leave it to you. Chris, you're a professional, and I'm just like, you know, doing my little bit in here. Thank you for coming. I wasn't wasn't yelling at you. You know that. I didn't mean to I know, but I'm going to pass on all the... Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Yeah. So for the... Thank you. So for those who don't know, so uh, so I, I co-host the Signal to Noise podcast, which is where many of you probably know me from. Uh, however, that's not my day gig. My day gig is I'm the director of operations currently at a, a corporate production company. Uh, I've been there for 11 years. So a lot of my knowledge and our questions around this area is going to come from um, staffing um, um AV professionals uh, in the corporate sense. Um, I did tour and work on the rock and roll side, but as a full timer, so my knowledge from the touring side um, is not going to be as great. So the, a lot of my perspective is going to kind of come from the uh, from the corporate side. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it there. So, Steve, I think one of the first things that I know I wanted to get into would be let's define a contract, right? Because um, when I kind of posed in kind of prepping for this, and I was like, "Hey, what's people's pain points being with contract this, that, and the other?" Overwhelmingly, I was like, "Well." contract what's a contract by working 40 years as a freelancer i've never had a contract so right um, just extending your hand that's a contract right right so let so you know obviously i write po's for the freelancers that i that i get i'm sometimes confirming them via text sometimes via email things like that so when when we say um you know contract it's not maybe a, a, a legal document that's 30 pages long that you then sign and agree to all these things so can you maybe talk about what defines a contract yeah so that, that's a great question. And hi, everybody. I'm now calm. Uh, <laughs> metaphorically, I just had a stiff drink feeling better. Um, I, I really, it's important to me to look professional as well as to be professional. So there, that's, 
That, that's why. Anyway, um, a contract, and I can put my lawyer hat on and be a refined person on a Sunday. Um, a contract is defined of three, defined by three elements. All three are required, but there are only three. This is not difficult. Um, they are an offer, acceptance of that offer, and some consideration. Now, let me explain what those mean. Offer, acceptance, and consideration. Those are the three elements of a contract, and they're all necessary in order for there to be a contract. The offer must be legal where it is made. So in a state, for example, so I'll use U.S. law because I'm an American attorney. I also do work in Canada, um, and I suspect I will start doing work in other countries. But generally speaking, I will use common law terminology. So in most places where you will be watching this, wherever you are, this will be true for you also. Um, so it's an offer that has to be legal where it is made. Um, in Arizona, we are tiptoeing gently into legalized cannabis, marijuana. Um, but I couldn't make a deal, Chris, with you to sell you a ton of weed because even here in, you know, free spirited Arizona, that's not a thing. Um, and Chris, remind me, where are you? Uh, I'm just outside of Philly. So you're outside of Philly. So under Pennsylvania law, I'm confident that I could not, that, that you could not take <laughs> possession of a ton of weed. Absolutely. Um, not so, legally. Yeah, not legally. Um, the good Quakers who founded Pennsylvania did not believe in that. So first, the offer has to be legal where made. Second, the acceptance of that offer must accept all of the material terms that were offered. So if, for example, um, I agreed to do this session, Chris, with you, but I agreed to do it only if it could be on a Monday, that would not be acceptance. Rather, that would be a rejection of your offer to do this session on Sunday and a counter offer to you, which you could accept by saying, yes, Steve, I want to talk to you so badly that I will do this session on a Monday and will then pre-record it. And the, the offer to pre-record would itself be a rejection of my offer. Mm. And it would be a counter offer because our original deal was to do this session live, which in fact we are doing. Right. So there's a note to you viewer. If you want to send something in the chat, do that because Chris and I are actually here on a Sunday. Um, <laughs> I suspect neither of us is watching football right now. Well, I'm not anyway. Um, so offer, acceptance, consideration. Consideration is an old-fashioned word. Generally, but not always, it means payment of money. But let's be clear, consideration can also be foregoing the opportunity to do something that you could otherwise do. So a non-compete agreement, for example, is consideration to forego, you know, trying to solicit business from someone that you just worked with on behalf of somebody else. Um, so consideration can be nearly anything. Now, offer, acceptance, and consideration. Let's get back to, Chris, where you began, which is, you know, does it have to be a 30-page document? I will now cite my beloved contracts professor from many years ago, um, Sanford N. Katz of Boston College Law School of Blessed Memory. And Professor Katz 
when he explained contract law, he picked up a basketball and you have to imagine a roly poly Jewish man with thick glasses and very nice ties for the 1990s. Um, and Professor Katz picked up a basketball like he was holding, you know, hot coals or an anvil, something that he wasn't used to holding. And he picked up this basketball and he said, this could be the thing on which we document a contract. And we all looked at him agog. It's like, Professor Katz holds a piece of sporting equipment. Oh, my goodness. Alert the media. And then he said, does the basketball even need to document the contract? And now we were stunned into silence. And somebody timidly from the back of the room said, no. And Professor Katz put down the basketball, this unfamiliar object that he had never held before. And he said, that's correct, because, and then he proceeded to explain to us oral contracts. Oral contracts are perfectly binding. So for those of you in TV land, <coughs> excuse me, what again are the three elements of a contract? Here, Chris, you and I can have this actual conversation. So I wrote, what it, again, I wrote, I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. So read it to us, Chris. What Offer, are the three acceptance elements? and consideration. Is a piece of paper, I don't have any piece of paper, I just have only books. Is a piece of paper one of the three elements? No. Is a basketball one of the three elements? Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. The medium by which you document the offer, acceptance of that offer, and some consideration does not matter. It is not a required element of a contract. There are three and only three, and that is the story. Offer acceptance and consideration. So, Chris, you ask a good question, which is, why do we see so many 30-page contracts? Mm, there's this sort of Dickensian thing where some lawyers get sort of metaphorically paid by the word. They don't get paid by the word. They get paid by the hour. Terrible system. Um, it encourages lawyers to be verbose. And I know that I'm being kind of verbose here, but it's for effect. I know that I'm competing against football and I have to bring it today. So I am. And besides, I'm agitated. Uh, so a contract does not have to be long. It doesn't have to use you know, words that no one has ever said here with, there unto, um, here and after, all that other nonsense contracts can be written in perfectly plain language, um, memorializing an agreement and the consideration for that agreement in an email, in a text message, um, you know, scribbled on the back of, you know, your package of licorice bridge mix, which is what I was eating yeah. to try and stay calm. I love licorice. Um, you know, those are all perfectly appropriate. They are legally binding. The reason that we write contracts is it's easier for everyone to remember exactly what the terms were. Well, That's I, the I think the, the, the consideration portion of that is the biggest part of that, right? Because, you know, like you said, um, if all I said to you is, hey, can you work a gig uh, December 10th um, in Phoenix, um, you know, you, you available that day? Cool. Yep. Accepted. You've accepted but there's been no consideration of how many hours, what your extra job was, is there cancellation policy, all of those things, right? So you, right. you, in essence, if you had said yes to that, you've accepted it, 
but we haven't actually put any, you know, whether it's verbal documentation, written documentation, all those things to it. That's right. So there can be an agreement in the scenario that you just described, because it may be that somebody here, use this example. I'm not getting paid for this time that you and I are chatting. The consideration for me is, you know, I wanted to do this. I saw some value in sharing pearls of wisdom with you, you know, gentle Sunday afternoon viewer. Um, and Chris, you and I had a very engaging podcast conversation um, sometime in the past, and I thought it would be fun. So the consideration from my perspective was doing good, having fun. That's enough. Right. <clears throat> Makes sense. Um, so then at, at what point um, should should we, uh, I guess, what are, what are considerations for, um, it's, that's interesting, that actually changed my, my scope on this, <laughs> thinking of, of, of trying to define, you know, what a, uh, what a contract was, um, you know, because in, in going back into my examples of, of asking people like, hey, what's your experience been this, that and the other, and I know, you know, my day-to-day experience is either a text, email, or call to someone to say, hey, you're available for X, Y, and Z. Um, there's some loose understanding, obviously, in our world of like, hey, if I'm hiring you to be an A1, okay, what's the loose scope of work? You know, it's, you know, expected to be this many hours a day, it's whatever. And nine times out of 10, I'm physically giving them a PO ahead of time um, so that they, you know, they can see we all agree upon the amount of hours, the rate, all of those things. Um when it comes to things like um, cancellation policies uh, because of rain or the incline changes things, if I had nowhere listed in my, my, my PO to that, to that freelancer, um, where does anyone have a leg to stand on in terms of what is, oh, I guess I'm, I'm shifting right into cancellation. Do it. I know it's a, a big jump, but I, I know where um, you're going. Uh, so, uh, let's just say sim- simple things like rain, right? Which is not what's, what's put aside what's happened the last two years, right? Let's just talk about normal, normal world, uh, rain happens or something like that. And nowhere in my PO that I've sent to you, um, ha- list anything about cancellation policy. You may have in the past sent me an email that say, Hey, here's my typical working conditions. You know, it's 24 hours, it's 72 hours, whatever the scaling thing is, um, outside of what is good ethically to do to someone you work with from a, from a legal standpoint, how does that work out? Uh, Badly. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's the answer. If you haven't discussed what a term of your agreement is, then you don't have an agreement as to that issue. Right. Um, I mean, that is the reason that people write contracts so that you can have some basis for at least, you know, talking about how to resolve a conflict. Because sure. cancellation, yeah, that's a thing that happened before the pandemic, happened more since the pandemic. But, you know, for a lot of reasons, events get postponed, rescheduled, change in scope. Uh, that's normal. You know, in, in our industry, things running as planned strikes me as you know, as the exception, perhaps, rather than the rule. So having contingencies by which you have a changed scope um, or changed deliverable schedule or changed manner of delivery or place where you're drop shipping or something like that, um, 
you know, with inflation being more of a thing, changed cost of goods or cost of labor. Those are all provisions that you want to document in a written contract sure. because they're things that are more likely than in some, you know, glorious past to become points of contention now. Um, you know, I, to take this out of the sound girls context, just briefly, I deal with a lot of event planners. And one of the things that I'm hearing uniformly is the cost of goods, food, uh, even table linen rentals, uh, much less workers has all risen significantly. And unless there is some provision for that in a contract, either an escalator clause or something, then one party is going to bear a disproportionate economic burden of the fact that times have changed, but we generally in our industry form contracts fairly far out in advance. I didn't predict, you know, I'm no economist. I didn't predict that there would be a significant increase in the cost of goods, but here we are. Right. And, you know, I know clients that are really suffering because their contracts don't have any provision for that. You know, I didn't write any before, you know, inflation became a thing. Right. So, you know, my own clients are saying, hey, Steve, you know, what do we do? And I'm saying, well, this is the time that you should be glad that you're not a jerk because <laughs> yeah, seriously, you know, that actually is often the resolution. You know, right. being a nice person, being a good business partner turns out to be an economically smart thing to do when circumstances change and now you need to go back to your contract partner, whoever you contracted with, to say, uh, you know, we had a deal, but the deal was based on an understanding of the world that no longer applies. So, you know, can you work with me on this? Because I can't deliver the way I promised to now based on assumptions that we all shared, you know, a year and a half ago. And there actually is a contract law provision about that, where if circumstances so dramatically change, then there is the law of mutual mistake. And that is grounds to void a contract, but you don't want to go there. Right. You know, that, that, that is basically a way of lawyer, you know, for lawyers to make more money. Meanwhile, you, you know, person who's struggling with a contract that's now onerous, um, you pay your lawyer, don't have resolution. Meanwhile, the gig passes you by. So right. being a nice person actually has legal value. Well, so let's talk about, so from a freelancer perspective, right? In the scenario I kind of talked about, right? I texted you, emailed you, whatever. Um, and we agreed upon dates, times. I sent you a PO. <clears throat> now, and I mentioned earlier, maybe this, maybe this freelancer has sent me this, Hey, this is my rate sheet. D, you know, this is when I'm an OT DT. Uh, this is my cancellation policy or whatever. Um, but I've sent them a PO with, and all that's listed on the PO is your call times and your rates, blah, 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 right? There is no cancellation clause in there. Does the, if, and if the, at what point, if, you know, freelancer just says, all right, received, got it, whatever. I haven't written my a cancellation in there, whether, even though they've sent me something before, says, hey, this is how I typically operate. How, as the freelancer, should you be responding back and saying, hey, um, do you need to get acknowledgement from the company of like, Hey, here's my cancel cancellation probably or something. Because if it, if all the PO says is, Hey, here's your, you, here's what you're getting paid for that day. 
and here's where to show up. Does the freelance have any leg to stand on when anything else happens, right? As what, so I'm trying to look at it from the freelancer perspective. Yeah. So from the freelancer's perspective, this is going to sound self-serving, so I, I have to give that caveat. What I advise my freelancer clients to do is to have me draw up an independent contractor agreement for them. And I tell them, you won't get to use this in its entirety very often. And the reason for that is someone, Chris, like you will have, excuse me, you'll have something that you will send to the freelancer and that will that will render irrelevant some of the provisions in the independent contractor agreement that I write for my freelancer clients. Having said that, it's a cut and paste job. And that's actually what I tell my clients is what I've given you is sort of an a la carte menu of legal terms. And if you don't see a cancellation provision, a force majeure provision, if you don't see something about COVID protection or, you know, workplace safety in, you know, the purchase order document that you receive, then you copy and paste those provisions into your response email and say, love the PO, but before we, we you know, seal this deal, there are some additional terms that I care about. Here they are. Do you agree to these? And because there won't be any conflict, Chris, you and your purchase order don't have the terms that I just described. The freelancer does. So assuming that they're not objectionable, and you know I write pretty unobjectionable stuff, it's all reasonable. Um, it should just be, f- you know, filling a vacuum right. that you have left, and you know, you as the hirer of a freelancer would say, yeah, that actually is fine. Um, you know, there's no inconsistency with stuff that I care about. So yes, freelancer, I agree to your terms and your a la carte menu of legal stuff. Let's follow my dates and pricing information and deliverable schedule. And, you know, that all forms one contract. Right. Aha. And now we have a contract. So, um, so I'm very familiar with the freelancer. Um, um, uh, sorry, the, um, the, what was that? The other clause, the um, independent contract agreement. There mm-hmm. we go. Sorry. Um, now uh, that in of itself. So if you have what the company states is, hey, here are our cancellation policies. No matter what type of job you're on, or whatever is all in an independent contract agreement um, of what you will or won't sue for, what you are or aren't responsible for, all those things, right? Um, if you if you have that signed with a freelancer, then I don't do I does there need to be a date consideration or anything on that? Or is it just uh, whenever you're working for a company, this you agreed to X. And so I don't have to put all of those things within my PO, right? If, if Is it understood that the freelancer shouldn't have to respond back with that copy and paste? Because if they send an agreement with you, does that supersede all of the POs or coincide with? How does, how does that work? They all get integrated. But, you know, your question suggests that the process of forming a contract by some combination of purchase order and, you know, a la carte menu of additional terms sent by email and then a responsive email. Now we've got three different documents just in this little hypothetical. Does that sound like a good and organized way of doing business? Not to me. Um, 
So what I suggest, just because I like to avoid conflicts for a lawyer, I'm conflict averse. <laughs> you know, I like to have deals that go smoothly and, you know, then people like working with each other is I try to put everything in one place. So if it's a purchase order that has a rejection and a new offer, which you then accept, then I, you know, if I'm the freelancer, what I would do is I would send back one email that has the entire string, you know, my additional term, your, a copy of your purchase order attached to the email, my additional terms from my a la carte menu of legal terms, your acceptance of that, and then my email as freelancer would simply say, Chris, thanks for the, the purchase order. Here is the full extent of our agreement. I look forward to seeing you on site whenever. And then everything is in one place. You can get rid of all the previous emails, you know, because I don't like having a ton of emails in my inbox. Um, you know, I just put them in a separate folder that I create for this particular job. But there's one email that has all of the relevant terms. And that is something that I actually do. That's good. How, um, how about the difference of a, a freelancer being 1099 or W-2, given some states and some companies? Um I imagine again. I understand that we stole the three principles, right? You, when you signed the W two, you still there's an offer accepted consideration, um, but uh, I, I guess everything still applies there, right? It's just, it's just a matter of how you're physically getting paid at that point, right? Yeah, although there are important differences between an employee versus an independent contractor, um, and different states in the U.S. take very different views about what make someone an employee versus an independent contractor. Um, yeah, California specifically. Well, it, exactly. California specifically um, under Assembly Bill 5, AB5. Um, AB5 basically makes the default position that everyone is an employee unless certain very specific criteria are met that show that one is truly an independent contractor. And that's a matter of public policy in the state of California, where they recognize, the legislature recognizes that employees have more protection as workers than independent contractors do. And under California law, they want workers to have more protection. In other states, they want employers to have more protection and, you know, kind of cast workers to cut their own deals or not um, as they're able to. It, and it's actually an interesting time for that equation because with the labor shortage and, you know, sort of brain drain in so many aspects of the event industry, employers can't cut the usual deals that they may have been used to because they may not be able to get an alternative person to the one that they're trying to, you know, make, accept um, not great working conditions. So, you know, from a freelancer standpoint, it's an interesting time to try to flex your muscles a bit because there are fewer freelancers to go around. And as a result of pent up demand for a lot of different forms of entertainment, um, there is an increased 
desire to use you. Um, so it's a good time if you're ready and healthy to go back to work. Um, you know, it's a good time to do that. And the deals that you can cut may be better than they ever have been before. Sure. Um, so a uh, question that Carly asked at the top. Um, I'd love to hear about how people navigate holds, bookings, and cancellations. Do you set time limits? I uh, must book a release within X hours or days. How to determine if you'll still charge if it cancels. So there's kind of two parts to that. Um, I could talk about how I handle holds and bookings. Yeah, do that. Um, so it's often one of two things, right? So, um, again, I'm, I'm working for a company. Uh, we have our, our clients who are, have, have either signed, a, signed our contract, signed our quote that says, yep, this, this job's a go, or, um, it's a verbal yes, but we don't have signed terms and stuff like that. Or it's just, Hey, we're still waiting to figure things out. Sometimes we're, um, we're starting to at least tentatively hold labor months out, year out, whatever, because we think we're going to get the contract or whatever. So uh, the, the words that I typically use, hey, this is a pencil hold. A pencil hold to me means that I get I, I get first right of refusal that, hey, if, if someone calls you, another company calls you and say, hey, are you able to dates? Give me the courtesy of calling me and pressing back on my client that says, hey, can I confirm this or do I just have to release it? Right. So um, outside of that, it's, it's a pencil hold or um, or it's confirmed. Right. And um, in terms of um, cancellations, and this is kind of what we we're talking about earlier, is I, it there's twofold here. I think, um, I think companies need to, um, uh, do a good job in either their, their contract agreement or in the POs to state what their terms are and vice versa. If you as a freelancer are concerned about it, as you should, um, you kind of heard us already talk about how you need to come back and say, Hey, you, we need both need to agree on here is my cancellation. It's all over the place. So like I work with labor brokers, you know, uh, stagehand booking companies all over the country and it's all different. Some are, Within 72 hours, it's 50% cancellation fee. If it's within 24 hours, it's 100%. You know, there's varying degrees. Most companies have a scaling one. It's not just an all or nothing um, when they're written well. Um, and uh, so I, I think, like we've already said, it, it just it, if you if you want to get paid for cancellation within a certain time period, you have to state it and and both agree to it. I think really I mean, that's what this kind of kind of boils down to. But the question on um, Steve, I guess. Me as a person booking labor, if I tell someone, if I'm using the language pencil hold, and as long as it's assumed on the other end that they understand that, right, this goes back, that's the agreement you understood that I pencil held you for this, right? I haven't given you a PO, right? Does that, is that work? <laughs> is there issues there? Yeah, I mean, a pencil hold is not a contract. You know, it's an agreement to agree, but it's not the actual agreement. So... You know, it's like a letter of intent in right. other contexts. Letter of intent is not a contract either. So with a pencil hold, you had, you haven't paid any consideration unless you do. Uh, you know, there have been times in you know my world as a lawyer, there have been times when somebody has a question and I'll say, if I asked you, would you pay me a nickel? Um, for the fabulous legal advice that I'm about to give you. And they say, yes. And I say, great. Then we've formed the attorney-client relationship because we agreed to some monetary compensation, even if I'd never remember to ask for it. And it's only a nickel anyway, who cares? But that's consideration because consideration can be almost anything. So for you, with your pencil hold, 
what you may want to do to form an actual contract is to say, I will send you a crisp $1 bill if you agree that, you know, you will give me this date unless you get a better offer, in which case you will call me first before you accept that offer. And your crisp $1 bill actually will bind that contract. But there has to be a monetary transaction there to bind that? Um, it's, sorry, dogs, dogs in the background. There we go. It's a tiny, well, it's Ellie, the terrier. Um, ferocious bark, very little bite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's very cute, but, you know, a leaf moves someplace in Maricopa County, Arizona, and Ellie barks <laughs> at it. It's just hilarious. Um, what were we talking about? Um, uh, the, you, you said that you're talking about the dollar value. Does there, there have to be a, on a, oh. on a hold? Does there have to be a, a money exchange or agreement of money exchange regardless for that? It's hold? easier. It's easier. I mean, what I do because I can't be bothered to carry cash ever is I just say, if I ask you to pay me a nickel, that's the number I use. If I asked you to pay me that, would you? And the agreement for them to pay me, you know, the five cents that I've requested, that's consideration sufficient to support a contract also, because it's their agreement to pay if I remember to ask for it. Essentially, they're agreeing to pay me. So, you. you know, whether you stick a crisp $1 bill in the mail or, you know, a loony if you're in Canada or, you know, whatever shekels or equivalent, that's good enough to support a contract under common law. Uh, Carly also asked, uh, what are some things to consider for a retainer? I primarily work in studios and typically hired on a per project per day basis. Sometimes a retainer for a month long might, uh, month or longer might make more sense. I gotta be honest. I haven't worked in much retainer world, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say everything we already said already applies, you know, uh, offer <laughs> you accepted it and then there was a consideration for all of the things that could happen within that time frame right i mean is there anything to think about around that no but let's talk about retainers because it's okay. a it's a good question um these are all good questions you know good good on you people on a sunday um Car carly's bringing it to i'm just saying i'm just yeah I'm, yeah <laughs> go carly um and and where the hell are the rest of you um you know, you're getting <laughs> shamed by carly um retainers Retainers for lawyers are a thing. Um, I have a friend in Atlanta. He's a you know buddy of mine from junior high school. He's done extremely well, and he has a major law firm in Atlanta. And you know he's a captain of industry. And me, you know, you're looking at my office in the background. You know, I have a very good life, but I live a simple life. Anyway, he laughed at me recently. My friend Joe did because. I am not in the habit of asking for retainers when I get hired on a new gig. And I think the legal term for my behavior is stupid. Um, it's not smart to commit to doing work without getting some money up front. And of course, my friend Joe is right. And I have now mended the error of my ways. And I have a retainer check sitting in my mailbox that I just need to pick up. So for you, you know, whoever you are watching this, is it a good idea to get some money up front 
if you are going to soon be, I don't know, spending money on travel expenses or foregoing other work opportunities that you could accept, yeah, it is a good idea. Getting a retainer is smart. And again, you know, given the current labor situation, it's a better idea that you can do. You can actually get people to pay you a retainer now because they want to lock you in because they know you, whoever you are who's watching this conversation, you are not fungible to the extent that you were before the labor shortage began. I don't understand the great migration. You know, is suddenly everybody working in an Amazon, you know, delivery warehouse? I don't know where everyone has gone, but clearly they've gone somewhere. <laughs> so is a retainer a good idea? Yes. Is getting one more possible now than it was before? Yeah, it is. That's cool. Um, and if anyone else has uh, questions, please continue to drop them in. We're just, you know, this is all just um, free thought here. Um, <laughs> we'll riff with the best of them. Uh, Laura said, I often get half up front for field recording. For that reason, I may need to buy supplies. They pay some costs up front. Again, I think all that is just back into into the uh, the consideration, right? It's all it, this. So it's very eye opening to know of those three that the those three things that you can pretty much if you you know again I'm gonna say it for anyone who maybe jumped in late. Uh, the the three parts of a contract uh, are offer, acceptance, and consideration. And so any of these questions you ask, I'm thinking in my head every time I, I say it, I'm looking at these three words. And I can start answering my own questions because of those of those threes, you know. So it's it's great. <laughs> it, it is great. So more nonsense from Steve Edelman. When I teach law students, which I do when the world is you know spinning on its axis in a predictable manner, um, I teach my law students on the first day of class, the beginning of the semester. I say the law that I teach, the law of torts and the law of contracts, is very simple. And my class is an upper level class. So they've already spent a year learning tort law and a year learning contract law because those are first year classes in every law school that exists in the U.S. And so the first day of class, I'll ask my, my second and third year law students, can anyone recite for me the four elements of a tort? Well, they've forgotten the four elements of a tort by the time they get to me. And so there's this moment of silence. And I wait and I let my eyes scan the room and I say, okay, here's a hint. The first word is duty. And then, you know, it, the light bulb dimly flickers for some student who did really well in first year torts. And they say, duty, breach, causation, harm. And you can see all the question marks after. And I say, yes, that's right. Duty, breach, causation, harm. Those are the four elements of a tort. Now let's, let's ratchet this up a level. What are the three elements of a contract? And now they're on to me. And they say, uh, you know, somebody's looked it up because of course they forgot that also. And they uh, offer acceptance consideration. And, and, you know, then there's this roar of approval because they, you know, they passed the audition. And I say, yes. So 
we can all say, and I asked them to do it together, you know, we, we do participatory call and response legal education in Steve Edelman's class. And I say, all right, let's say it together now on three, duty, breach, causation, harm, offer, acceptance, consideration. And we do that. And, you know, then we do it again because I always tell them the first time that sucked. Um, and I get them to say it from the diaphragm and we do, we, you know, duty, breach, causation, harm, offer, acceptance, considerations like we're cheerleaders. And, and I say, fantastic. You just covered all of the law that we're going to discuss for the next 14 weeks of the semester. I have nothing legal to teach you anymore. <laughs> now it's all about applying those seven elements. So, Chris, if, if you feel like you're just going back to the three elements of a contract, offer, acceptance, and consideration, I've done my job because contract law, the law of contracts is actually pretty simple. It's the application of that law that gets complicated, that people mess up and, you know, frankly, puts food on my table. Um, the law is just offer, acceptance, consideration. You know, if you're looking at a, at a, crowd disaster, which is how I spend much of my time. It's duty, breach, causation, harm. There's nothing else to it. You know, there are some other words that lawyers use, but really that's what it boils down to every situation. So if you want to talk about retainers, yeah. Offer. You offer to do the work on the condition that you are paid a retainer of X number of dollars. The person hiring you accepts your offer by saying, yes, we will accept, we will receive the benefit of your work and we agree to pay you X number of dollars and a certain number of those dollars we will pay you right now upon signature. And the consideration is they actually do pay you that certain number of dollars upon signing your basketball or your written contract or, you know, sending back an email saying, yes, we agree. And then they wire funds into your bank account. Those are contracts. What are, um, what, what are some, um, mistake, common mistakes you see people have when it, when it, when it comes to this stuff? I mean, I think we, <laughs> it's funny how much, so much of this sums up of what we've already kind of talked about, but I mean, what's, you know, uh, I'm, I'm look from a freelancer perspective, what's, what are, what's some of the most common things that people can easily avoid? And it sounds, I mean, to me, I, I think my answer for myself would be just that, Do it. that simple, e that, that simple, that simple email of acknowledgement of like, Hey, just so we're all on the same page. I've agreed to X, Y, and Z. Right. And, and if you haven't stated it, then therefore you have no legal leg to stand on outside of 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 um, not being an asshole or, or, or you know, whatever, you know. So, yeah. Um, Chris, I love having a conversation when I don't have to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's, yeah, I was very much looking forward to this because I mean, I, I live in this world and in uh, terms of, of contracts and freelancers and, and cancellations and, and obviously cancellations are on the forefront of everything. And, um, and, and I, I guess the question I would have is, I mean, um, the terms around cancellations um, haven't changed with COVID. It's uh, meaning um People's interpretations of cancellations may have changed. However, um, the consideration that would have been there in the first place, um, it just needs to be redefined if anyone thinks it's different than what it was before. 
right? I mean, is that, you know, like for instance, obviously, uh, because if people say, hey, if you test na- if test positive, you can't show, but you're already on a flight and, and you test positive when you show up the show site and things like that. If you haven't actually, I'm thinking a ladder, if you haven't actually defined ahead of time that, hey, um, let's say I'm a freelancer, I show up the site, require testing on site, I test positive on site, I can't come to the gig. Do I get paid for that gig? Exactly. And, but but I guess if you haven't written out the consideration, it's you, it's going to be a he said she said on, on what what is air quotes right right I mean well that that's correct so you know let's let's apply this conversation so now we've gone from basic you know first year law let's apply it the application do I, do I get what, a certificate after this do I, I want um, yeah you know you get an official <laughs> you know like sheriff's deputy star you know Chris Leonard lawman. Um, I want one of your fezes. I need a fez. Where's your Where's your ooh, fez? I'm going off camera for just a second. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> yep. Uh, and please. Well, well, here we go. Well, here we go. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yes, I, I will now uh, have an entire discussion. You know, trying to keep a straight face while I wear a chicken bucket size fez. Um, see. If you're somehow not following the video portion of this, you are missing something. <laughs> I cornea searing right now. Um, the hell were we talking about? <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, well, like uh, if if uh, if I had gone to site, tested, oh, should I get paid? Right. And, so, yeah. Like... So COVID does you know compel us to apply the basic legal principle i gotta take this off Um, (laughs) does compel us to apply the the foundational legal principles in ways that we didn't before so let's play out the scenario that you just started chris because i think that's a really important one first of all i let it not go unsaid the best way for you to not have to go down the rabbit hole that Chris and I are about to go down is to get vaccinated. If for some reason you are not yet, take this opportunity to turn off the video, go to your local supermarket, you know, pharmacy, you know, whatever. It is basically as available as a bunch of bananas and costs you less to get vaccinated. Um, there, I've done my duty in that regard. Um, if you want more, go to YouTube, where I just had what I thought was a really interesting conversation with um, the epidemiologist who talked to the um, the WNBA. The WNBA is now either 99 or 100% vaccinated. And Jessica Malati Rivera was the epidemiologist working with them to get them past their concerns about, you know, efficacy, um, the effect on their health as athletes, their health as either mothers or women who might want to get pregnant. Um, And Jessica also talked with me about religious exemptions and exemptions based on supposed allergic reactions. It is a very good conversation and should be available on YouTube now. So there, enough about vaccination. If for some reason you go to a show site and you test positive or you have close contact with someone who tests positive, now you are in a world of trouble because not only can you not work, so you can't get them, you can't earn the money that you were promised in exchange for your work, 
But now you're stuck being someplace where you can't do anything and you can't leave. It's like Hotel California. You know, you can check out anytime you like, but you cannot leave until you go through your quarantine period. So who's paying for your hotel room? Who's paying for your, your food delivered to your hotel room? Because you can't go out, you know, and get a bucket of chicken in a fez or otherwise, because you are potentially infectious. And you don't want to be that person who infects other people. Um, we don't like those people. And, you know, personally, I would like to beat the crap out of anyone who does that sort of behavior. So don't be like that. But what you want to do if, you know, that scenario is a possibility in your work is to have a contract provision that specifies who's covering your additional expenses if you need to quarantine. You want that language. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and really, and I, I would say that just to press on this further, I mean, from a freelance standpoint, like the ownership is on you, uh, that if you have concerns about that, you can't just wait and ex- except for the company that you're working with to define that for you. If, if they're not, if the company you're working for is not willing to define that for you, you need to at least say, hey, here's what I expect. Do you agree to this? And then if they don't, obviously you go back and forth and talk about that. But I mean, uh, there can't be any assumptions uh, on what you think is ethically right, because what you think is ethically right versus what a company is, I mean, could be two different things. So let's talk about, so now let's continue on the advanced level of contract law. So Chris? I'm going for that certificate, by the way. Yes. Yeah. So so let's, let's work on the second of the three elements of a contract for our readers or viewers. Would you remind us what are the three elements of a contract? Offer, acceptance, and consideration. Okay. Let's talk about acceptance. Now, so far we've talked about acceptance in the form of written communications, um, emails. There is another type of acceptance. So let's play out this scenario because this is fun and is actually something that you just said and you were right, but I don't think you realized this is advanced contract law that you said. So let's explain, you know, viewers, why Chris Leonard is actually even smarter about contract law than I think he <laughs> realizes. Acceptance can be either express or implied. Hmm. Express acceptance is, you know, Chris, who is hiring a freelancer, sees the freelancer's terms, which say, among other things, um, you know, God forbid I get, you know, I test positive, Um, you know, you, Chris Leonard, will finance my hotel stay until my quarantine period is done and I have, um, you know, a negative test result under my belt. And you will also cover my food and, you know, any other stuff. Chris can accept that by sending back an email, yes, I agree, sounds good, sounds fair, Um, I'm a fair guy, which of course he is, and that's great. Or Chris can silently accept those terms. So you freelancer, you say, you know, if I get sick, you, you, you know, you, Chris, agree to pay for my hotel quarantine and my food quarantine and, you know, all this other stuff. Chris doesn't respond by email or text or anything 
but he brings you onto the site. He has accepted your offer. Your offer was expressed. He has accepted your offer by continuing the transaction without denying your offer. So acceptance by silence Mm -hmm. is acceptance too if he takes positive steps to continue the transaction, bringing it closer to its conclusion. Do you want to do that? Do you want to do business that way? No, you don't. You want to get an express acceptance of someone's offer. But is it better for you, freelancer, to tap out all the terms that you think are important, email them to the Chris Leonard in your world and say, these are the terms by which I agree to work. If you, ex- you know, if you're okay with that, I'll come. And then if you wind up coming, the implication as a matter of law is he's okay with your terms. Because if it, so if I have not, if I have not rejected, I have, I've therefore that's the implied acceptance, right? That's exactly right. If you have not rejected terms, then you have implicitly. Ah, so well, hold on, real quick. That, that so that makes me think. So in my scenario earlier, where say a freelancer has sent me their rate sheet with their cancellation terms and whatever, if I have not responded to that and said, you know, hey, I don't agree to this cancellation policy you've told me, regardless of what my PO has written at, have I accepted their um, their terms in, in that instance as well? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, it's not a good. I mean, again, legally, right? We're not talking about ethically. We're talking about legally. You know, what's right or wrong, right? I mean, it's. uh, I I mean, I could refuse to not pay this person's cancellation policy because maybe I think it's absurd or whatever. And then, and then they would choose whether you know they want to take legal action, if you will, right? But I mean, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And and let's let's be clear about the end of you know where, where Chris's ellipsis took us. You know, legal action, legal action to enforce a contract. Very, very bad idea. Um, It's expensive. It's time consuming. And in the context that we're talking about here, a freelance gig, it is almost never going to be economically worth it to file a lawsuit for, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand dollars even. You know, the cost of litigation is high, you know. I'm a pretty reasonably priced lawyer. You don't want to have to pay me an hourly rate to recapture, you know, even 10,000 bucks for a gig. It's not worth it. I'm going to cost you at least that much to get you a result. So, you know, all the stuff that we're talking about, about the way the law works and the way contracts are formed is important because you don't ever want to get to where Chris's sentence trailed off at a lawsuit. That's a very, very bad scenario. Um, I want to jump to some of the questions. And and so Michael, because Michael texted me about the questions. Michael's question, I think you you may have missed a portion of the beginning, but I'll I'll rephrase it anyway. And then I'm going to jump to Laura. So Michael had asked, any tips for navigating the reality of the world of of being largely word of of mouth or handshake based? Many friends never sign a contract. And and we kind of kicked off this meeting with a contract doesn't have to be a piece of paper that you signed, right? It's the three key elements are offer, acceptance, and consideration. And that can be done verbally 
email or whatever. All right, Chris, um, did you look down at your paper when you said them, or are they now part of your brain? I, I, it, it'll get there. I'm just, I'm just trying to be accurate. <laughs> I'm just trying to be that, accurate. That's I'm, when you get the the deputy. I want, I want, yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going for the the star, the hat, or whatever I can get out of this, right? So, <laughs> um, uh, so I think at the end of the day, um, if you are concerned about um, any part of the consideration of the acceptance. Um, you should document it in, in some fashion. Um, and then if you haven't, then you're in the implied world that it's going to be, he said, she said the whole way, whole way down, down the road. So if you want to avoid, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, I'm teaching next class, Steve. Uh, so if you want to avoid the implied, well. there has to be some type of documentation uh, and it can be in, in length or in short. Um, so Laura, Laura said, um, is it dumb to sign a contract with a non-compete clause that has a vague scope uh, an indefinite term. Sometimes I think it wouldn't be enforceable anyway. She kind of clarifies that basically sometimes I think about uh, shitty contract terms. We've worked together before and it's annoying to everyone if I ask them to change it. So if it's not enforceable, maybe just leave it in. Hmm. Uh, maybe maybe in particular in two different parts, but yeah, I, mean, yeah. let's, I, let's... I I have not really dealt too much with uh, non competeness or whatever. So I don't know if you have something to say in terms of of, of that area. I do. Uh, non compete provisions are potentially very important because they are anti competitive. Uh, you know, they keep people from accepting work that they could otherwise do, which means corpse frown on non-compete clauses. They are construed narrowly because it's bad for the economy to have non-compete clauses. Um, hmm. So should you ever agree to a non-compete clause that is overly broad? No, 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 no you should not. Um, because you're allowing someone to sue you for work that you should be able to accept period. Next paragraph. Should you ever accept a non-compete clause that is indefinite, which I think was part of the question. Uh, and that's when I made a, a face of delight <laughs> because yeah. now I get to introduce you to a, a fun first year contract law term, the fertile octogenarian. Uh, here, Yes, the fertile octogenarian. This was real. This is why we love Professor Sanford and Katz. Uh, not only because of his unfamiliarity with sporting equipment, but because he had stories about the fertile octogenarian. Here's the concept. A contract must be of definite duration, meaning it cannot be indefinite in duration. It can't be forever. The reason for that is things that you expect will never happen in the law could happen, such as an octogenarian becoming pregnant and giving birth to a child. So the concept of a fertile octogenarian is a contract law concept that reminds us every contract must have a definite end. So a non-compete not only should be narrow in scope to avoid the negative economic consequences for society, we don't, you know, society does not want you to become a ward of the state due to some contract agreement that you foolishly signed. Also, it does not want any contract to be enforceable in perpetuity for the same reason. It is 
economically disadvantageous, not only for you, but for society writ large, if you can't work because of one agreement that you signed. Right. So there, that's, that, that is an actual answer to a question that I'm not sure you meant quite in that level of detail. No, no, no. I, I think it's perfect. I mean, it, it answers that. Um, so I think maybe w- what should be, um, let's see, no, uh, change it. So, I mean, uh, she said this kind of indefinite non-compete clause I've seen in contracts with a finite term, like one week or six months. Um, finite term right so yeah i mean i mean i think and like any contract right so if you don't agree to or want to agree to that um uh not compete you need to, to state that right i mean it's i mean because if you if <laughs> the implied if you haven't actually stated it you you have taken that on right i mean that that's, that's very i don't know i'm learning lots look of at that things. learning curve no no, 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 no. It, this is why i wanted to do this session i quite frankly whether people were listening or questioning or not i wanted to know all this stuff as well so <laughs> This is I'm, I'm I'm learning just as much hopefully as everyone else. Chris, you'll have to go back and watch this. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and if there's any other questions, keep uh, keep keep uh, bring check the chat real quick. Sorry, um, I don't think there are new questions yet, but hmm. contracts. contracts. <laughs> I don't know. I could do my best, Professor Kingsfield. So. Here, I'll, I'll just riff for a moment while anybody is teeing up a new question. Um, my favorite movie about contracts is called The Paper Chase. The Paper Chase came out like 1971, so it's pretty dated looking. Um, but it stars John Houseman as the fearsome Professor Charles, Charles Kingsfield. Um, John Houseman was a wonderful Shakespearean actor on Broadway, and he was hired to serve as uh, the contracts professor at Harvard Law School for first year. Um, And he was incredibly intimidating. Anyway, his famous line is, you come here with a skull full of mush, leave thinking like a lawyer. And it was just wonderful. And my contracts professor was Sanford and Katz, I've said several times you know, this wonderful roly-poly Jewish man. And he was as unintimidating as one could be, especially in contrast to what I anticipated, which was Charles Kingsfield, talking about skulls full of mush. So I try to find some middle ground as a professor of law myself. (laughs) Uh, We had another good question come in. So intellectual property, any thoughts on generally how to protect ourselves in a contract? Yes, hire an intellectual property lawyer. (laughs) That's serious. So, sorry, every every answer comes with a story. When I was a young lawyer, I still had gray hair. I went gray very early. But when I was a young lawyer, um, I worked with a very smart partner who was an intellectual property partner. And, you know, I enjoyed the work. So I kind of got interested in intellectual property law for a while. And eventually I stopped doing IP law because I realized that my interest level in federal statutes, all intellectual property is a matter of federal law in the United States. Um, My tolerance for reading extremely densely worded, very complicated federal statutes was limited. Um, 
you know, I like when things go boom. And, you know, I am fascinated by disaster because I see that as kind of the natural order of things. And intellectual property law, I kind of exhausted my interest in it. It's hard. It's hard because it's based on complicated federal statutes. And I do not dabble in things that require serious expertise. Intellectual property law requires serious expertise, just like, you know, tax law. You know, you wouldn't try to navigate ERISA, for example. You would just hire an ERISA expert. Intellectual property law is the same. So if you, you know, if you watching this, if you deal with your own intellectual property, if you are an artist or creator of content, you want to have someone who understands intellectual property law and wherever it is that you do your work so they can protect your interests. You wouldn't hire Steve Edelman to protect your IP. I don't know it. I don't know the law of intellectual property well enough to serve anyone's interests. So, you know, when I have a question in a very specialized area, I am blessed with smart friends and I just refer the work to a smart friend who can help. And then my smart friend says, hey, Steve, thanks for the referral. And I say, great, you know, glad to do it. And if somebody comes to you with something that's not in your wheelhouse that is in mine, you'll refer it back to me. And they say, absolutely. Is that a contract? No, it's just people being kind to each other. Sure. And, you know, as we discussed, you know, an hour ago, that's actually a very good way of navigating a very rapidly changing world. Personal relationships and being fair and kind. You know, there's a lawyer talking to you about fairness. <laughs> it truly is a bizarre time we're living in. But I, I take stuff like that seriously. Being transparently fair. You know, if somebody seems to be missing something, you know, they, they don't understand something that you've said or written, point it out. You know, make sure that you actually are on the same page. It won't bite you in the ass. Rather, it will cement that you are a good person to work with and will yield more opportunities to do paid work in the future. I genuinely believe that because mm -hmm. it has happened to me repeatedly. You know, by not being a jerk, I know that I've gotten more work. Uh, Laura asks, what about if there is a clause to protect the client's IP in the contract? Should I make it a, should I make it mutual, like add in a line that my IP is mine, not theirs? Is that redundant? Um, this is going to get too specific very quickly. Um, there is the concept of a work made for hire. So now I'm violating what I just said. I do not actually doubt intellectual <laughs> property law, but work made for hire is a term that I see often enough. Do I know the full extent of what it means? I confess I do not. Do I know enough to you know, make sure that it's fair to my clients? Yeah, I do. Um, the point that I'm trying to make not necessarily successfully is I meant what I just said. If you are someone who deals with content, don't screw around with, you know, your average lawyer who is, you know, general knowledge of contract law in the live event world. Make sure that you're working with someone who can actually protect your intellectual property. 
Um, you know, if we we're talking about, say, indemnity and hold harmless provisions, my answer would be an unequivocal yes, they should be mutual because everybody should be responsible for their own negligence or willful misconduct. That's a basic provision of the law of indemnity. Do I fully understand how that would work in the context of ownership of intellectual property rights? No, without more detail, I don't know. Sure. I don't want to give, well, I don't want to give legal advice at all during this conversation. Sure. We didn't agree to that. Um, right. <laughs> I'll pay you a nickel. Um, no, but I do uh, not accept that in this form. No. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> I want the I want the I want the certificate throw the star. Anyway, um, uh, and I think I'm I'm guessing by Laura's earlier comments, she works in field recording and stuff. So I'm assuming maybe I, I'm th- I'm guessing Laura like some of the work you think that you the way you designed or created something that's maybe some of your your property versus what you're actually delivering in the end. I'm just I'm guessing by what you said there earlier. I'd be curious maybe talk some of the time about that uh, just to pick your brain i'm curious about um um protecting or not protecting um uh w- maybe advice if you can on whether <laughs> you someone, really want advice huh <laughs> uh on whether someone um as a freelancer um should have an llc or a company or like in in terms of contracts and how because maybe when it comes to the point of legal action, how is that better or not? I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud in that world. Again, I haven't ever been on the freelance side. I've always been on the company side. Yeah. So uh, I'm just trying to look for some advice from people who maybe knew or just have been riding so long in one way. Maybe you should think about doing things differently. Yeah. So I, I will give you some non-legal business advice. So let, let's be clear. This is not legal advice to you because I have not agreed and you have not offered to pay me um, because you cannot reach through the screen. And if, you're writing things in the chat. Chris can see it, but I cannot. Anyway, business advice. If you are a freelancer, you want to form an LLC, limited liability company. You want to do business through the LLC for a couple of very good reasons. This is, this is strong business advice that I'm giving you right now. Again, you know, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not giving you legal advice, but this is the right way that you should do it. You want to form an LLC and you want to do business through your LLC because it protects your personal assets in the unlikely event, God forbid, that you ever get sued. If you LLC, if you just operate as Joe Schlobotnik and you get hired and you, you know, drop an anvil on somebody's foot, they can sue you for any assets that are titled in your name. That's a bad scenario. No matter how many assets you have, even if you think that you, you know, you rent an apartment, you owe a lot on your car, you know, surely there is something of value that you want that you don't want to give away. If you operate through a corporate entity, such as a limited liability company, your personal assets are protected. That is an important thing as well. Forming an LLC in most states, again, I'm an American lawyer, so I'll use U.S. law, is simple. In Arizona, the state in which I live, I formed Edelman Law Group PLLC, Professional Limited Liability Company, because that's what lawyers get to do. We're professionals. I'm wearing a blue collar today, but I'm a white collar worker. (laughs) Edelman Law Group, PLLC, protects my fabulous homestead and and my loved ones 
from stuff that we care about getting taken away in the unlikely event, God forbid, that I ever get sued. So that's important because I like my little car and I don't want it taken away. I just cleaned it today. So that's why you want to form a corporate entity as well. You would have the insurance for your work. You would buy the insurance through your corporate entity as well. And you could receive and pay money through the corporate entity. And so you would basically, you know, erect a wall between your personal self and your business self. You want to do that. You, you want to do that for a lot of financial reasons. And, you know, if you want to know more about setting up an LLC, number one, you can just go online and, you know, type in how to form an LLC in my state. But also, you know, you should talk to whoever advises you about business and, you know, might be the guy who you know, works on your taxes at the end of the year, but they can help you through that line of inquiry. Um, you know, all I know for sure is in my experience, it is far better to work through a corporate entity than as an individual because it protects your stuff. That's great. <clears throat> Um, and the, Laura had mentioned, I think it was maybe along the lines of um, intellectual property, uh, trade secrets. Should I try to make the trade secret confidentiality mutual in a uh, in a freelance contract? I also, I also freelancer have trade secrets. The client protects theirs in their contract? Question mark. Not really sure where to go on that, but I mean, that's is that it's still kind of in that um, intellectual property, I would assume, in terms of 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 how that goes. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that one. I mean, all that I, all that I can glean from that question, again, it's probably too specific for this right. conversational format, is if you, freelancer, are bringing your intellectual property into a relationship where someone else is, has got theirs, then you're right. You want to keep them from stealing your IP, just like they want to keep you from stealing theirs. There, my hand motions are probably distracting, but you know, as you have described it in your message in the chat, it sounds like the protection of intellectual property rights should be mutual because you both have rights that you want to assert. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to try to answer this one myself. This is from, I had oh, go, Chris, go. In, in our Facebook group a while back and someone had asked, um, um, Another point is uh, to make as an A1 is the responsibility of the front of house playback devices and compensation for personal hardware, software, culpability of the device uh, were to have issues during show, um, things like that. Uh, scope, right? Which is called the scope of what the services you are implying. Uh, specifically, like if you're bringing gear, uh, like your, your your playback machine or comm or something like that. Um, my assumption here... <laughs> Uh, is that there'd be an implied acceptance, if not written, as to if your gear fails, what happens there, right? Unless you have, if you haven't talked about that, I imagine both the employer or like you know, the company uh, could come after you if your gear failed, and you know because if 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 uh, I I intend for your gear, I'm thinking out loud. I intend for your gear to work, and if it doesn't, I have issue with that, <laughs> you know. Uh, and if I haven't explicitly written otherwise ahead of time again this outside of um 
uh, ethically of how you would go about these things. Yes, I have the ability to fault you for that and, and come at you for whatever ramifications I may have. Like my client, you know, doesn't want to pay twenty thousand dollars of their bill of the show because your playback computer failed and 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 that was the major sponsor of the show or something like that, you know. And then, well, then I'm going to come after you because it was, it was your gear by default, right? So I, I don't know. That's did I answer that properly in terms of like if you have again, it's all implied if you have not actually agreed upon ahead of time what the scope and ramifications are of those scopes are yes <laughs> see it's good it's good stuff it, it is good stuff so you know for you watching this if it seems like we're kind of running out of steam it's because the answers get easier as yeah. you start to accept that everything is based on offer acceptance and consideration and really every question will yield an answer that's a variation on that theme. It's not that complicated. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, let me see if there's any other questions. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I, speaking around, Steve. I, I mean, since, since because it is kind of revolving around and, and each question I'm able to start answering because of that, if anyone has any other questions, please um Michaela, i don't know if you if you want to jump in if you had anything um and or steve i don't know if you had any other areas around this that you maybe want to throw some some words of wisdom out but i mean this is uh it's been very eye-opening for me and uh i'm, I'm looking forward to just mentally processing this more in my in my my day-to-day -day for sure yeah i mean honestly my goal is to make it seem like like why does law school take three years this seems like I could do it after an hour or so. If it feels that easy and that simple, that's good. It, it is good. I mean, of course, it is more complicated. And, you know, when you get into bigger, more complicated transactions, there is more to discuss. But the basic stuff, which is what, you know, most freelancers would be dealing with, the basic stuff actually is pretty simple. And if you, you know, you watching this, if you go through the Q&A the way Chris and I have, I suspect that you will get to the point that Chris has gotten to over the last hour and a half, which is even as he's formulating his questions, he's starting to realize he can answer them himself. That's the point that I get to every semester when I teach my law students, you know, after the first few classes, they realize that the game is I'm asking them questions that they know the answers to. Then we can get to the harder stuff, which is thinking through the factual situations and why stuff that they just assumed was true isn't or at least isn't as simplistic as they always thought that it was. And that's what distinguishes you know, lay people from good lawyers is a more sophisticated level of analysis. So, you know, for you watching this, my goal is simply to get you to the point that I think Chris has gotten to and, you know, thus earned his deputy star, which is as you're formulating a question by thinking through the basic principles of offer acceptance and consideration, you realize, oh, I think I know the answer. Because you probably do. 
Yeah, and just to answer Laura's question, I, I think when defining when defining the scope of service, I've seen some contracts where the scope is a section in the main contract body, or sometimes it's an attachment. Doesn't matter which way I structure it. My answer to that would be no. It's just as long as it's documented. I mean, it, it, you know, um, may it be easier to find if it's all one place, like Steve said earlier. Yes. However, at the end of the day, as long as as long as it's documented, it, it doesn't matter where it is. Quite frankly. Is that exactly. really true, to be fair, if I may ask? Can you hear me well now? Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. So, because, I mean, I'm an event manager, yeah? So, I mean, basically, I structure contracts for our venue. And, I mean, obviously, yes, I realized while we were talking or while you were talking um, on this topic that it is simple unless there's something everybody forgot about. Yeah, I mean... From my own personal experience, I mean, most of the time everything goes smoothly unless there's something that nobody ever, you know, just thought of. Um, like COVID? Oh, <laughs> I'm just, I mean, there's so many scenarios around it, you know, like, hey, if I test positive once I get the show site. In the past, if I was coughing and sneezing and had a flu on show site, what do you do? You work through and you get the job done. And you're going to, you know what I mean? So, like, I, 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 I didn't mean to. Yeah, but that's that's an easy uh, scenario. Go, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, so to, to, Mikhail, let me let me see if I can add to your question because I think it's a really good one. So I'm gonna, I'm such a Jew. I'm going to add. I'm going to respond to a question by asking another question. Who? No, that's just yeah. that's just good conversation. That's that, that's not that's well, not. Well, it's it's also playing into a stereotype, but yeah, <laughs> I, I embrace it. Who is in the best position to identify the reasonably foreseeable risks of whatever work it is that we're talking about? Your choices are A, your attorney, or B, you. Who's in the best position to identify what substantive risks are most reasonably foreseeable in your work? That's a good question. I would say you. I would say you because I mean you probably know your job better than the than the lawyer's gonna know your job. The lawyer just knows what was or wasn't documented, what is is a fact. That's right. Mm -hmm. So this, Chris, is why you get the deputy star. Yes. Because you have grasped the simple legal concepts and you understand that the lawyer is basically a scrivener. You know, I can write a contract, but do I know your work unless you tell me your work conditions? No, I don't. I can write legal language, you know, I as a lawyer, so this applies to any lawyer. Any lawyer can write legal language to identify legal rights and responsibilities, but I don't know what scenarios to write legal language about unless you the freelancer, the client, the, you know, whoever you are in the equation, unless you tell your lawyer what situations they need to write about. I, Steve Edelman, because I'm fully immersed in the live event industry, I'm actually pretty good at identifying the reasonably foreseeable risks. So, you know, Chris, Michaela, I could do that for both of your scenarios because I work with the people who hire freelancers and I work with venues. I understand what you guys are up against. But for many lawyers, they don't. 
So it becomes incumbent upon you, viewer of this conversation, it becomes incumbent upon you to tell your lawyer what your work is about. Otherwise, they don't know and they can't protect you. Yeah, very true. Yeah, it is very true. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. It's brilliant. I mean, um, when I received the email that, yeah, okay, we're going to be in a session together. Um, Who the hell think- is this guy? What do I do? <laughs> no, because I'm from the UK and I'm not even originally from the UK. So, um, yeah, I so never would have guessed that from your accent. Really? <laughs> well, no, he, he, he's saying he, never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what, like, he, leave me be in that, you know. <laughs> In full transparency, I and uh, so Steve and I got on a call about a week ago. We're like, "What? What session did we sign up to actually do? What should we actually talk about?" We're both like, we, you know, when Carrie reached out, we're like, you know, like, yeah, let's do this, this. Oh shoot! All right, what are we actually talking about? So, Completely you know, yeah, forgot. No, but it, it's all good. And I mean, it was you know because I was like, "Oh well, is Steve would give a presentation." It's like I don't have a presentation. Um, you know that that's the three year law school thing, right? now. Um. No, so that I, I'm I, I hopeful. I'm hoping that everyone found this as as helpful as I did. Um, and and uh, Chris, really, it's all been all about your legal education. Everyone else is just watching our our dialogue I, back and forth. Look, that's that's what I do every week on Signal Noise Podcast. I, look, I had these conversations with people because these are the conversations I want to have. If people want to happen to be over my shoulder listening in, great. Yeah. <laughs> I think Terry Gross has made a career of that with, you know, her fresh air show. She just talks to people she's interested in. And it turns out because she's interesting, she has cool guests and, you know, we're all flies on the wall. Absolutely. No, I need to well, and, well, then I'll, I'll do a plug that we, we've, we've done two episodes with Steve on a Sickles Noise podcast. Uh, so please, please check them out. They're both uh, hopefully just as entertaining, if not more entertaining than these. One of which, I mean, he did wear like the Fez hat for like a good bit of the time. So we oh, appreciate well, that. Way to They're plug up. the Fez. There you go. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, if you, if you are screenshotting this. <laughs> I have the screenshot from last time. It's all good. Yeah, that's right. Amazing. So, Michaela, did, did you have anything else since you were the fly on the wall? For no, I, I mean, you just said it all. I, <laughs> I was because I didn't know at first, like who basically who you are. I mean, I'm learning all the time. As I'm saying, I'm not that well, not don't have the knowledge like what's happening in the U.S. at this time or like in general, to be fair. <laughs> it's, just, it's a mess. <laughs> Yeah, the well, United States is a hot mess right now. Right, so really, really happy to have you here and like to perfect that you. I mean, we had a lot of questions to be fair. Questions to be fair. Yeah, I th- and we, we we hit them all, which is great. Great. So, yeah, I appreciate, appreciate everyone for uh, hanging out with us. Yeah, good stuff for a Sunday. Th- thanks for your participation, everyone. Sweet. Awesome. There's ten people I see in here still, still and... hanging on to the yeah. bitter end. Yeah, I mean, oh, we drop, we're down the nine, so they're dropping away. No. I, I think it's I think it's, I think it's a good chance to, time to wrap up. Yeah. No, no further questions in chat have come in. Michaela, I appreciate you. Steve, it's good talking to you again. And yeah, uh, yeah. thank you so again. much for today. Thanks, everyone. I I, I, care, I know you're busy, both of you. So thanks a lot, and 
see you around. See you sometime, maybe next year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. See you. Thank Bye. you.